So in loving like Jesus, we're to do the things that Jesus did, spend the time with people, the types of people that Jesus spent time with, and obey what he commanded us. Jesus told his disciples um, in Jesus' last day here on this earth after his resurrection, and he appeared for 40 days, he said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore you go, baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit uh, for the forgiveness of their sins and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Lo, I am with you to the very end. So God is with us. So we're to do what Jesus told us to do. And one of the things that we see played out again over and over again in the pages of Scripture is that Jesus showing mercy and compassion of people. That's especially prevalent in the Gospel of Luke. Luke highlights the stories where Jesus spent time with the outcasts, the people nobody wanted, the people that couldn't add any benefit to your life, or at least people thought. So those stories are repeated over and over again in the book of Luke. And that's why Luke includes the story of Zacchaeus, the tax collector. Nobody liked Zacchaeus because he was a tax collector and a crook, and he robbed from his own people to make a living. But that's why Luke chose to include that version, that story, so that we would have that, because he's focused especially on how Jesus deals with those who are in desperate need of mercy. So that's our big idea. That's what we'll talk about today. It came from the chapter on loving like Jesus entitled Mercy that we've been reading uh, to get us ready for Sundays. But one of the things I could think about a lot when it, comes to, when it comes to school is that a lot of people have trouble taking tests. Does anybody not like tests when school comes up? I thought about passing out a test to everybody, having you fill that out, so you got chalk instead. You're welcome. We don't have a test as you came in today. Now, some people genuinely have test anxiety, and that's a real thing because you're ready for the test, and you go to take the test, and you just go blank. You can't remember it. Now, some of us have test anxiety, and it's not a real thing. It's that you didn't prepare, and you know you're going to fail because you weren't ready. That's not test anxiety. That's just called not doing the work. There's a difference between those real things, between knowing the information and forgetting and just not knowing it at all. Those are different things. We can put them in different categories. I can remember in elementary school very specifically, um, there was a year or so that I was on the academic team where we traveled around and they asked questions and you had to press the buzzer and answer the question right. And they asked a question, I can't remember how it was worded, but the answer was Colorado and I knew it. So I went to buzz in, but right as I buzz in, the person who was reading the question said the word Colorado and I just buzzed in. I was like, well, if that's the answer, she's not going to say it. What is it? So everybody's looking at me because I buzzed in, my little thing lit up and I'm just going, I I just froze. I didn't know what else to say because my answer, she said it, and it had to be something else. Well, what happened, I think that they were naming cities in Colorado, and she was going to say Colorado Springs, but I buzzed in right at Colorado, so when you buzz in, the person reading the question stops, and you have to answer because that's one of the penalties of buzzing in early. If you know the answer, great, but if you don't, you don't get the clues that might come in the rest of the question. So I completely froze. I had no idea what to say. And then time ran out, and then they read the question again for the other team, and the answer was Colorado. I'm like, man, I knew that. But I, but I froze in that moment. Where I also remember it was in fourth grade. We were watching a video on the rainforest in one of my classes, and at the end the teacher said, all right, now get out a paper. We've got a quiz based on the video. Teachers like to do that to make sure you're paying attention to the video. And so we all get out our papers and write our names on them, and she starts asking us the most insane questions that I've ever heard for a test, like stuff that you never paid attention to. How many people in the video wore a red shirt? How many vehicles were on that cart that they were driving through? And then I'm just stressing out because I have no idea the answers to any of these questions. Questions. And then it comes down to the very end, and the last question that our teacher asked us, she said, what do you like better, real tests or fake tests? 
And I was stressed out through that whole thing because I didn't know the answer to one of those questions. Some of my classmates were a little bit sharper than I was, and they caught on, so they're writing like Superman and all these other funny things in the answers to all these questions that we didn't know the answers to. We've heard it talked about our human response before is either fight or flight when it comes to certain situations or stress comes up, but there's also that other one that pops up, and it's what? Freeze. We don't know what to do. And you don't know how to respond. Now, sometimes you might look around or try to get some help in circumstances where that's okay, and it's not cheating to try to get some encouragement from other places. I see, I've got a couple little videos about some tests that some kids were taking. Let me play the first one for you. So you get up in front of people. You get up in front of people, and it's like, I know the answer, but I'm just frozen, and I can't, I can't do it. And so he looked at his friend, and I, I mean, that's what his friend said, three, but he, he wrote okay. And I, I, he probably didn't even get partial credit. You teachers out there, you may get partial credit if you're having a good day, but that may be for creativity. I really don't know. Here's another one on here, too. We'll see what happens to this next kid. I don't know if that's a turkey or if he drew his hand or if he was just writing five in a very creative way, so we have to allow him the freedom to answer the question that way. But sometimes when we're trying to relay messages to other people or sometimes when we're trying to help, their friends are trying to help them and they gave them the right answer, but they read it and they didn't quite get it right. And see, that happens with tests, and that happens when we're faced with things that we know that we're supposed to do, and God puts before us things that we know, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, this is what I should do, yet sometimes what I do, I don't know about you, but I convolute the message and I mess it up, and I don't get it right. Well, yeah, five was kind of right, but he's kind of drawing his hand, and he copied from somebody else. What we see in, in Luke chapter 10 is that we see these people gathering around Jesus, and they're putting Jesus to the test. That's exactly what it tells us as this story unfolds. A lawyer stands up to Jesus to put him to the test to see if he's going to answer the question right. The story, one of Jesus' most famous, unfolds this way, where he's asked a question, and he teaches by telling a story. We call them parables. But Luke chapter 10, starting verse 26, God's word reads this way. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, is talking to Jesus, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor is yourself. And he, Jesus, said to him, this lawyer who asked the question, you have answered correctly, do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road and where he saw him, and he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and he saw them, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, and he bound up his wounds, putting on oil and wine. Then he sent him on his own animal, and he brought him to an inn and took care of him. 
The next day he took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when you come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. See, if we look at the characters in this story, both the lawyer and Jesus, and then this a parable, this story that Jesus made up to teach a point, robbers do what we expect robbers to do. What do robbers do? Well, they rob people, and they steal, and they hurt people, and they leave them for dead. What the robbers are saying to this man as he traveled by them, and he says, what's yours is mine, and I'm going to take it from you. And then when the priest and the Levite pass this man, and their thought was, well, what's, what's mine is mine, and I'm not going to help you. I've got some other things I have to do. Kind of like what Jeff said. They wanted to make sure that they stayed clean by not touching the wrong things so that they could go about and that they could be close with God. Yet this Samaritan viewed this differently. Let me give you an example of how Jesus, the lawyer and all the people who heard Jesus tell this story would have, would have heard it. They're right. All right, there's a story and there's a priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan. Okay, we know how this is going to end. All right, let me give you a better example this way. I'm gonna, you're going to give us a really complicated math problem, and we're, you're going to ask Joel, who's a preacher, TJ, who's an engineer, and Terry, who's an accountant-ish, to do that, okay? Who's most likely to get it wrong? Me, absolutely, without a doubt. Is somebody that works with numbers all day or an engineer or the preacher going to get it wrong? Or the preacher's going to get it wrong when it comes to that. That's exactly what these people thought about this story. Who's the most likely not to do the right thing? Absolutely, it's the Samaritan. Surely, the priest and the Levite are going to help. And if they don't, they've got good reason. There's no way the Samaritan does what's right. That's how this story would have unfolded. Yet, that's what happens in Jesus' parables. He flips it around, and he teaches us. It's really what we're, what we're not expecting to happen is what teaches us the most when it comes to Jesus' parables. And that's what happens right here with the priest and the Levite and the Samaritan who come around here. You know, one definition, um, of mercy that I came across as I was thinking about this is that using, it's using power well. It's the ability to crush somebody and maybe being, even being right in doing so, but they elected not to do that. I think Aaron Chambers told the story in this book on mercy that we're reading, Loving Like Jesus. There was a, a football team who was really good who was playing a football team from the correctional facility. And what they did, because their fans never came out, they never had anybody cheering them on, what they did is they had all their cheerleaders and all their fans put out this big tunnel and cheer on the other team as they ran out. Why? They thought because nobody ever does that. Nobody ever feels like they're on the side of these kids who are incarcerated yet are playing football. And the team, the coach that did that, they just went on to annihilate the prison team. They just destroyed them. It wasn't even close. But those kids who were celebrated before the game, they were running around afterwards like they'd won the Super Bowl. Because somebody had treated them mercy. Someone had extended mercy onto them and let them know that they were cared for. When uh, Dr. Martin Luther King was thinking about this text, this parable of Jesus and the Good Samaritan, he came up with a couple questions. And he said, the priest and the Levite, they asked the wrong question. They asked, if I help this man, what's going to happen to me? But the Samaritan comes along and asks the right question. He says, if I don't help this man, what's going to happen to him? 
See, the priest and the Levite, they crossed by on the other side of the road so that they could still carry out their priestly duties, the things that they had to do to offer sacrifices, to go into the temple, to be a clean person of God. See, the way that they looked at life, the way that they looked at this man who was beaten for dead, is that they said, I'm going to honor God by keeping my hands clean. Yet the Samaritan, who were half-breeds, but they didn't like, the Jewish people didn't, he thought, I'm going to honor God. I'm going to love God by getting my hands dirty. And I think for us as the church, it can become too easy to think, I'm going to honor God by making sure I keep my hands clean. Yet that's not the right question as Dr. King posed when he was talking about this story of Jesus. It's, what's going to happen to this person if I don't step in and I'm not willing to intervene? Did you ever play the game Mercy with your siblings or brothers or whatever growing up or sisters? They can play that game too. You lock hands together so for, and you just you go and you try to twist and you try to hurt the other person, right? Until somebody says, mercy. And then if you're winning, you might let go, you might not. You might twist them a little bit more and then they let go. But you win when the other person says mercy. You just want to prove who's stronger or who can do more fancy moves to make the other person give up or say uncle first or however you wanted to play that. You know, having mercy is, having, or showing mercy is having power and dealing with it well. And I think that's what Jesus does. In fact, the book of Romans tells us that even while we were enemies, we were still sinners. Christ died for us. God didn't have to show us mercy, but he chose to because God is just love in his very nature. He loves people. It's what he does. So to extend grace to us, to extend mercy to us, is just a natural overflowing of God and his person and how he behaves and how he interacts. When we're thinking about mercy and how we're merciful to other people, I think what we can do is that we overcomplicate things. If you have your Bibles, look at this again right at the very end of this story. I really believe it could end at verse 35. We don't need verse 36 and 37. I'm glad they're there because sometimes I'm really thick-headed and I don't get pretty obvious stuff that God's trying to teach me. But those, those verses aren't needed. They're not. Because the answer to the question about, remember what, what was asked? The lawyer said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he answered the question right. He said, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, you're right. And then this lawyer trying to justify himself, saying, well, who is my neighbor? Can you clear that up for me? Because I don't want to love the wrong person, Jesus, okay? I want you to clear that up for me. I'd hate to waste my time loving somebody who didn't deserve it, who was unwilling, or who wasn't. And Jesus said, to answer the question of who is my neighbor, he told this story. And he tells the story of the priest who passes by this guy who's going to die when left unattended, this Levite who's going to die when left unattended. The story makes that explicitly clear, and these guys knew that. And then this Samaritan comes by, who they all expect maybe just to walk by and kick him. Hey, if the priest and the Levite just walk by, the Samaritan's going to do something worse. They're going to kick him and maybe finish the poor guy off. I don't know what they think the Samaritan's going to do. But that's not what happens. The Samaritan does what's right. And so as that story unfolds and Jesus says, not only did the Samaritan take care of him, put him on his animal, took him to the innkeeper and basically said, here's my credit card, take care of this man and make sure he heals. Jesus didn't have to say what he said in verses 36 and 37 because the answer to the question is obvious, isn't it? It's obvious. 
We know exactly what we're supposed to do and who my neighbor is based on this story that Jesus told. Yet he explains it to me because I need him to. He asks the question, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Really, the story could end there. We don't need this last little part that Luke tells us. But the lawyer does get it right. He says, the one who showed him, what's the word? Mercy. See, mercy is not just something I feel in my heart, but it's an action that comes out. That's the same way with compassion. It's such, I just kind of feel bad, but there's action that takes place. Who's the one that proved to be a neighbor? The one who showed mercy. When we as followers of Jesus or wherever we are in your faith are looking to honor Jesus with our lives and we're going to love our neighbors as ourselves, who did the right thing? And I can't help but think at the end when we're standing before God on that day of judgment and he goes, well, the one that showed mercy is the one who did the right thing. Now, sometimes it's very clear what God wants for us to do, yet we convolute it and we do the exact opposite. We talk about a lot. and It's an awful lot about, maybe you've seen this illustration before from Francis Chan, but he's going to tell you a story. I want to show you guys this, how we make what's simple too complicated. Why does that work in church and not anywhere else? Look, when, when, when my daughter comes to me and I say, hey, go, go clean your room, she knows better. She, she's not going to come back a couple hours later and say, hey, Dad, I memorized what you said to me. You said, go clean your room. You know, what am I going to say? Oh, good job. That's what I wanted. No. And, and she's not going to come to me and say, Dad, I can say, go clean your room in Greek. Listen, that's not going to fly. And, and what if she says, you know what? My friends and I, we're going to gather together, and every week we're going to have a study, and we're going to figure out what it would look like if I cleaned my room. <laughs> no, none of that's going to fly. Just go and clean it. She knows that. So why do we think that this type of thinking or this type of talk is going to work with Jesus? I mean, Jesus was as black and white as you get. He would look at people and he'd say, why do you call me Lord when you don't do what I say? He says that in Luke 6, 46. Why do you call me Lord when you don't do what I ask you to do? I mean, why would you call someone your master and then not listen to him? And, and he says in Matthew 7, 21, he goes, listen, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's only the one who actually does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the one who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. The answer is obvious. Um, Jeff Walling is a preacher, and there's a clip from where he preached um, at the North American a couple years ago. I'm going to show you that in just a second. But I'll tell you what we don't need about showing mercy to people. I don't need a list of 30. We don't need to brainstorm ways together. Let's get a list of 35 different ways how I can show mercy to other people. We don't need that. I think what we need to do is just put the obvious thing that God put right in front of us. Not just talk about it, but turn around and do what God told us to do. Jeff's going to talk about chalk, and then you'll see why I gave you a piece of chalk. Let's watch this. My background and my heritage has not been good at admitting there's stuff we don't know. You know what I mean? Everybody know what I'm talking about here? Anybody raised in the church and understand that at times we have this DNA in us that says, oh yeah, we know. We know who's right and who's wrong. We know who's in and who's out. We know which of the millennial discussions is correct. Pre, post, ah. 
I was a little worried when you put so many of the speakers in the Millennial Hotel, actually, Dudley. You see, I'm a guy who grew up thinking that I got this thing covered. Oh, like Francis said, I love this book. And unfortunately, what I love about this book is I know the answers. And so I would use it like a brick bat to beat everybody else up. What? You don't have communion every week? Oh, ho, ho, come right over here, Bubba. I'm going to take care. I'm going to knock you right into the truth. I'm going to take care of you. I'm gonna what? You don't baptize by immersion at this particular. Let me tell you, and I am ready to go because I know. And they say, well, what? And I extend my knowledge into areas that I don't think God wants me to be unequivocal about. And I just put it to you straight. I had chalk. And my chalk was used to draw the circle of the saved. And I knew who was in and who was out. And by the way, you independent Christian folks, I mean, you were like barely. I mean, just across the line, all right? Because the way I figured it, you didn't have the instruments these guys did. So, you know, you were just singing. And so as a kid growing up, man, I would draw that chalk line. And my chalk line sometimes would go, oh, not you. I mean, I was able to call out the saved and the lost so easy. I was the one standing at the gate, sheep, go, 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 sheep, go, 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 go. Don't tell me you haven't done that. Sometimes you can even tell by the kind of Bible they carry. Look at that, Pentecostal. All right. And then I met Grace. And my problem was that I thought that Grace meant, okay, all right, I'll draw a bigger circle. And then God came to me and said, you really want to do it right? I said, yes, show me how to do it right. He said, give me the chalk. I miss my chalk. <laughs> it made me feel powerful and comfortable. He's right. You, we're going to miss our chalk when we give that back to God, but that's the only way to get it right. God, God says, Joel, do you really want to do it right? I do, I do. I want to do what you're calling for me to do. And he says, give me back the chalk. Because the truth of the matter is, it was never mine to use in the first place. You know, I don't know where you sit particularly or what exactly it is that you use as your chalk or what are the qualifying lines that you use to try to put extra things on people that Scripture may not say. But we're going to give the chalk back. I want you to come up here in just a minute, and I'll, I'll tell you what to do. I want everybody to come up. If you need help, don't run over anybody coming up here. And I got a big bin on purpose. You know why? Because I want it to make noise. You don't have to slam it in there, but I got two pieces of chalk. That wasn't by accident. I need two pieces of chalk to give back. But I want all of us to come up as we sing our last song, which, by the way, is new. I already taught it to you. You just didn't know it. I played it during offering. So we're going to stand in just a minute. Just wait. I'll give you instructions. And here's how we're going to do this. We're going to come forward, and we're going to give the chalk back because we don't need it. We're just going to do damage with it, 
and we're going to symbolically together as a church give this back to God because it belongs to him. Now the song that is going to play and the words are going to come up just like it's a song that we sing. I played it in offering. You guys are a smart bunch. You can sing along too. As you can and as you put your chalk in, we'll stand and sing. Put your chalk in. Make your way back to wherever you want to sit and sit in somebody else's chair. I don't care. Sit wherever you like as you go back. But let's come up and put our chalk back. And we're going to sing this song, Kyrie Eleison, Have Mercy. It's Greek. It's this phrase that the church has used in the liturgy of the church for a couple thousand years. Now, we like to think generally in our little circle of church, we don't have liturgy. It's a fancy word for worship. Liturgical churches are the ones that read things and use candles and incense, but we all have a liturgy. Ours is just less formal than some other people. But what we're going to do is that we're going to give back. And what we're saying is that the churches use this phrase, Kyrie eleison, Christi eleison, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy. And those are the lyrics to the song as you're making your way up, as you felt led. Come on up, return the chalk, make your way back to your seat, sing along with the words that appear as you can. And I told you I got two pieces of chalk, and I don't need either one of them. So we're going to stand and sing a song that's new, but you're sharp, we're smart, we can do this together. And as you're led, come put your chalk bag.
Excelente.